0: That's kind of cool. All right. Hey, that's all we got. Uh, Turning to Bibles, please, to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. Judges chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. And now, um, b- before, I, um, before I read that, um, I'm going to open with a little bit of an illustration here. So get, get positioned, uh, sermon starts now, um, Judges chapter six, um, and in verse one, uh, but I start with a, a bit of a story. Um, Superman, so uh, Superman, where did Superman come from? I mean, you have all these superhero movies and the Avengers and all these mashup of superheroes and some have amazing powers and then others don't have all that amazing powers like archery, um, not sure archery is a superpower, um, and then like Scarlett Johansson has what, a Glock? Uh, I'm not sure what her superpower is. She's like bang, jumping around, boom, boom, not really sure that's a superpower, you know? Maybe it is in uh, like Alabama or somewhere, but, uh, um, and then you have like uh, Iron Man, his is a suit. You know, and then you've got Spider-Man. He was bitten by a radioactive spider. And there's, it, a lot of it is a science project gone wrong and somebody turns into a rock man um, or a big green fellow or, or something. So there's a lot of, like, scientific goof-ups and radioactivity and stuff like that and stuff, all that, superheroes. But the original superhero was Superman. And do you know where, how and when Superman originated? Do you know? It was two high school students in 1933. Is that not something? Two high school students in 1933 thought up Superman, and um, they, they started thinking, okay, he could provide not just the rescuing humanity needed, but the example as well. I mean, that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? And um, did you know that the Nazis hated Superman? they They saw Superman as a personal affront because you 've got these uh this kind of cocky American attitude that we 're the good guys and there 's this power that 's going to help us, and there 's this overarching good, and the Nazis hated it because u s servicemen soldiers would be overseas, and one in four think about this, the greatest generation all that we talk about, one in four of them abroad had a comic book, one in four, and the most popular comic book was Superman. Is that not wild? And so, as the war is happening, they're moving around the European military theater, and there's a, there are a lot of Superman comic books in their stuff. Is that wild? And the Nazis hated it. All right, all that to say, it says here in this article, Superman was the first superhero Deep within the psyche of human beings, there's this idea that we had communication with God once and that things were really good and we lived in a paradise. And now humans are in the process process of trying to restore this paradise and so on. And this is a running theme that intrigues humanity. We are wired that there is something greater than us. This is one of the attractions of superheroes, people made in God's image. And so I think that's a great illustration because you've got this this stronger one who comes from outside of us. He's a different kind of superhero. He's not bit by a radioactive spider here amongst us and was one of us. He's someone who comes from outside of us with his powers to help us and to be the example for us. Pretty cool gospel parallel there. All right, so it's a running theme that intrigues humanity, and the story in front of us, ladies and gentlemen, is a long one. I mean, the story of Gideon could really be taught on, and in fact, I have taught on it in years years, and years past in several weeks. It's 100 verses. We're going to take it in large chunks, large chunks but I want to get this idea across to you. This is the main idea. God makes his strength your strength. There's a strength that comes from outside of us, and he makes his strength our strength by his intervention. All right, that said, let's look at the scriptures. Here it is, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 of Judges. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves, the strongholds. In other words, they're hiding in the rocks. Verse 3, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against Israel and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken And received here today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's a dire scene we just read, isn't it? It's a dire scene. The people of Israel are literally hiding in caves. Uh, every time food is produced, somehow they they cultivate some plot of land and they wait it out, and it gets some rain, and they grow some food. Um, the enemies from the north come in; they sweep in like locusts, and really, truly like locusts, because the locusts sweep in and consume all the food. They come in and they consume all the food. They eat all the stuff. They take the livestock. And as we continue, we must remember the reason for this problem. The reason for this problem is in verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian uh, for uh, seven years. So the people cry out in anguish, but that doesn't necessarily mean repentance. It doesn't necessarily mean that they cried out in repentance. Um, the NIV would tell us later in chapter 10 that uh, the people cry out in anguish and the Lord could bear their misery no more. That's how the NIV puts it, and I rather like that. The Lord could bear their misery no more. It's not like they were saying, we're so sorry. We sinned against you. Uh, you're a holy God, and we, your people, sinned against us. It's often preached that in Judges, there's a cycle. Uh, and it's a repentance, and then remorse, and then uh, restoral, and then uh, there's another one, too. It's like four hours, and it's this cycle. That's a, that's a, that's a misunderstanding. That's a misunderstanding. You're not seeing uh, evidences of repentance. You're seeing misery, and then the Lord just can't stand the misery any longer. He loves them, and He intervenes, and uh, He keeps His remnant. That's a good R. He keeps His remnant alive. So when it comes to deliverance, though, the point, ladies and gentlemen, is this. How does God start, and with whom does God start? When it comes to redeeming His people, He delivers them into the hand of the Midianites with His own good intention for chastising them and and writing them to his will. When God does that, when he's going to deliver, how does he start with his deliverance? Well, um, let's go to our first point here. God's salvation starts with powerlessness. Um, Now, if you look at verse 11, uh, let's read along. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Now, don't get all freaked out about the terebinth and what is that. It's a kind of tree all right? And uh, Ophrah is a place. So there's a tree in a specific place. It's the place that's important. There's a tree in a place. It happened to belong to Joash, the Abba right. while well, his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, all right? So um, the angel of the Lord comes to this particular tree in this particular place owned by this particular guy who had a particular son who was hiding in, in, the, uh, in the wine press to beat out the wheat for the Midians. So that's a sad scene too, isn't it? You've got this guy and uh, people are already hiding in rocks and now you've got this son who's uh, uh, beating out the wheat in the wine press because he doesn't want the enemy to see it and steal their food. So he's hiding to prepare the food. And in verse 12, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I mean, that's almost comical, isn't it? I mean, it's this weak scene, weak, weak, under oppression. He's hiding in a rock, grinding out the wheat so it doesn't get stolen. The angel of the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Is that not wild? It's almost funny. I think the Bible, the Bible wants to, us to go, huh, wow, that's pretty wild. That's contrary to what you'd think. So we've got to pause for a moment just to clarify something in the story, all right? Something very important. Verse 12, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Now, you may be wondering uh, who this angel of the Lord person is, and it's very important for us to consider it because the Bible unabashedly uses that term and expects that we're going to have some kind of understanding of it. The Bible expects that we're going to be puzzled by it just like the original readers would and that we're going to want some kind of answer as to the identity of this person, the angel of the Lord. Notice that it's not an angel of the Lord. It is the angel of the Lord, a very important distinction. So, a reference to the angel of the Lord first appears in Genesis 16. And uh, the word angel, uh, you may or may not know, means messenger or someone who is sent. Okay, that's what an angel is, uh, someone who is sent. And so, um, is this person merely an angel? Or uh, why would someone think otherwise? What's the difference between an angel? And the angel of the Lord, that's a very specific thing to say. The Bible says it and says it in a number of places. Well, we can start with our passage here. Uh, Notice that in verse 11, it says, the um, angel of the Lord. So first line, the angel of the Lord came. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared. Uh, Verse 13, and Gideon said to him, Okay, we're supposed to see, oh, the angel of the Lord. Um, but then in verse 14, it says this, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel. Do I not send you? Isn't that interesting that it goes from a description of the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Gideon replies to this angel of the Lord and all of a sudden, seamlessly, Without any kind of distinction, without any kind, seamlessly, the the dialogue flips, and uh, the Lord turned and said, um, says again in verse 16, and the Lord said to him, Uh, that's dramatic and mysterious, and I believe that it's supposed to be dramatic and, and and mysterious. So who is this angel of the Lord, dude? Now, he's referenced a number of times in the Old Testament Scripture, you don't have to turn, but in the story of Hagar in Genesis 16, if you read that story, you will see that uh, Hagar is speaking, and uh, she's saying, um, the angel of the Lord said to her, the angel of the Lord said to her, or the, the text is saying that, the angel of the Lord said to her once, the angel of the Lord said to her twice, the angel of the Lord said to her, three times, the angel of the Lord said to her... And you know what she says, Hagar speaking? She says, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one, with a capital O, who sees me. What is that, ladies and gentlemen? But a statement of recognized divinity. That's what, that's what the Bible is articulating, is that Hagar sees a divine reality. There's no nudging toward that point or trying to make it say something or make the Bible support my system of theology or whatever. That is what the Bible is saying is that this person speaking to Hagar is divine. And let me ask you this, switching to another story. What about Moses and the burning bush? Hey, who talks to Moses out of the burning bush, do you know? Who? God, right? I mean, would everybody agree with that? That God talks to Moses out of the burning bush. Okay, let me read it to you. Exodus 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Your whole life you're like, oh, and God talked to Moses out of the burning bush. You're right. But the way the Bible puts it, it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And seamlessly, the dialogue changes to the voice of God. And it says, when the Lord saw Moses, God called to him out of the bush. Um, Let me flip here real quick, God. Don't turn. I'm almost there, 23. Yeah, check it. Um, Um. Listen to this. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Okay, Here, God's saying, hey, Moses, guess what, buddy? Uh, you're gonna be okay. i am send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. That's a giant statement. I mean, who can forgive sin, number one? God. But number two, when God says, My name is in him, that is a potent thing to say. Isaiah 42:8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God is his name, his name is him. And uh, his name is in this one, this angel. So whoever this angelic being is that shows up at key redemptive points in, in biblical history, um, it, it's very specific situations, and it is used interchangeably with God. And so what's happening in our passage um, today, um, the, the two most important things, I think, are, are, are these. Number one, whoever this angel of the Lord character is has divine attributes, um, and abilities, okay? And then the second thing, and I think this is just key, whoever this angel of the Lord person is receives worship. And, uh, you know, at the very end of Revelation, uh, this is on, look at it's on the last page of the Bible, last page of the Bible, John the Apostle's writing, and he says this. Um, he says, um, oh, yeah, 8 and 9. Oh, hang on. There we go. I, I, hold on. I blew it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So when somebody ever tries to fall down and worship an angel, the angel's like, "Ah, ah, ah. no, don't do that. I'm just an angel. I'm a created being like you. But when it's the angel of the Lord, take off your shoes. The angel of the Lord will receive worship. The angel of the Lord speaks with divine authority, forgiving authority, um, speaks as a fiat-making being. All right? So this angel of the Lord, um, who is he then? The the technical word for it uh, in theological circles is a theophany, or more specifically, a Christophany. That would be a pre incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never heard that before, you're probably going, well, that's wacky. It's blowing my mind. Um, But you know what? If you've heard it many times before, it's still blowing your mind, (laughs) It, it blows my mind. But it's, it's no secret that God intervened and intervened and intervened with his, with his creation via the prophets, via his own mysterious presence in the tabernacle and temple. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit uh, even hovering over the waters. That's God the Father. And uh, God the Son is very much a part of redemption. And uh, this angel of the Lord figure, I believe, the Bible teaches, is a pre-incarnate version of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So... To the passage, then, uh, with that assumption, we'll go back to Judges chapter six, verse twelve. So the angel of the Lord appears to him, and he says, "Hey, um, oh, mighty man of valor!" <laughs> and then in verse 15, uh, fourteen, uh, he says, "Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the Midians, uh, from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you?" Um, and so it's it's almost funny. It's like, "Hey, weakling." You're such a weakling. Uh, your people are such weaklings. They're scaredy cats. They're hiding in caves, and you're hiding in a cave too. And, uh, but you're a mighty man of valor, and you're going to go rescue. And Midian's like, what are you doing? Um, Gideon asks in uh, verse 15, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, listen to this, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So guess what? Israel's weak. My clan's the weakest, and I'm the biggest weakling in the whole group. I'm weak, God, weak, weak, weak. I'm the worst guy to pick, and you're calling me a mighty man of valor, and then you're saying I'm going to go and and go do this deliverance. You get it. You get the scene, man. It's totally unlikely. That is the point. Remember that later. That is the point. The weakest of the weak. That is the point. Um now I, I I tricked the senior high when I did a version of this message for them in uh, Colorado. I tricked the senior high, and i won 't play it for you, but um, uh, i went uh, here 's how I set them up. I said, "Hey, um, uh, Tammy and I went to Chicago, and uh, there 's a Schmegot church up there, and uh, we went to a, we went to a conference up there, and they had this groovy college minister and I mean." It was a college ministry. Their Wednesday night college ministry had 800 people in it, literally 800 people. It was unbelievable. And it was like light show and, and you know, people were milling around talking. It was very... It was like being at a Katy Perry concert, you know? I mean, it was really just loud, and it, it wasn't very worshipful, okay? But that, but it was a giant college ministry in this giant church in the Chicago area, and the the, the uh, college minister guy had come from L.A., and it was funny because when you went to his former church's website, he was like wearing Calibra's shirts, you know? Hey, California, dude, oh, colors, And then he comes to Chicago, and it's like, Fu Manchu, urban, you know. Like all, he just, like, totally changed his identity to kind of fit his ministry context and all that. Um, but anyway, he gave a, he gave a, he gave a, a little uh, conference, and there were probably, I don't know, 18, 20 of us in the room, and Tammy and I were two of them, and he said, if you want to understand this culture, I mean, this culture right now, if you want to understand this culture, then you need to listen to this song because it is the single clearest identifier of where they are. It was a song called Fragile. And so he plays it, and I mean, it's this, it's this non-Christian thing going, oh God, you know, if you're up there, are you fragile too? I mean, I'm fragile. My generation's fragile. Don't let us fall too hard. That was the message of it. I'm fragile. Are you fragile too? That was the message of it. And so I play the song for the, the, the whole high school group, and I say, does he get, did the college guy, does he get you? Does he understand you? Yeah, boy, I sure feel fragile. Boy, yeah, I sure don't let me fall too hard. Yeah, I have questions about God. Can he really help me? I mean, is he really up there? Is he strong, or is he just, is he a weakling like me? I mean, is he some slob on the bus trying to make his way home like me? And uh, so, yeah, so I trick him. And I go, guess what? And I hold up the CD. I said, I had to search for this CD because it was made in 1995. There's no digital version of it anywhere. And the band's long broken up and they have day gigs at banks somewhere. But the point is, wave upon wave upon wave, generation upon generation upon generation experiences the same kind of questions. We feel the same kinds of things. We have to come to terms with a hunched-over humanity, this world that's broken, this world that's limping, and, and we, we go, well, what's the way out of this weakness? I mean, what is our help, and can God help us? Um, here's how God can help us. You come to God, and you say to him prior to the cross, you say, God, I need you for absolutely everything. I can't contribute anything to this gospel equation except my guilt and sin. You know, when somebody says, I I fall on the mercy of the court, that's what it means to come to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to come to the ultimate court, the the court of God's holy perfection. You say, God, I am not going to try to add to this gospel. I can only say, all I can do is say, please help me. All I can do is fall on the mercy of the court. It's no small thing that the Bible is so specific in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's by grace you have been saved. And by the way, if you can't understand that, it's by grace through faith. Uh, And guess what? It's a gift. In case that's not clear, you can't work at it. In case that's not clear, God doesn't want anyone to boast about how good a person they've always tried to be. I mean, it's grace. You can't do it. Grace, you can't do it. Grace, you can't do it. Grace, you can't do it. That is the message of the cross. God comes from outside to help you. And uh, his salvation starts with powerlessness. That's the gospel message. All right, next point. God's deliverance comes with mystery. Now look at verse 7, if you would... Um, chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, Lord says to Gideon, and this is, very, this is key now. The Lord says to Gideon, chapter 7, verse 2, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. All right, you get that? Very important for you to track with that, because this whole passage has gotten goofed up a million times by a million preachers over the years. It's been ruined. God is saying, hey, I know you got an army. The army's too big. I want to make the army smaller. So I got uh, a weakened Israel. I got a weak clan. I got a weak guy who's got an army, and I want to make the army weaker. And God gives us the reason. I want to make the army weaker. I want to make the army smaller. You know why? Because when it's all over, I don't want anyone to boast about it and say, We did it! Yay! We beat the enemy. Look at us. Let's have a... He wants them to say, God did this. God was our deliverer. That's what God wants. Makes it very, very clear in the passage. And so God basically says, okay tell everybody, I'm just going to summarize it for for you, tell everybody who's a fraidy cat that if they want to go home, they can go home. And um, uh, so a giant part of them, uh, uh, 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So out of 32,000 people, 22,000 were fraidy cats and they went home, there was 10,000 left. And God goes to Gideon, he says, the people are still too many. I want to make your your army even smaller. So then he takes them down to the water, and uh, they they get a drink. And God says, hey, Gideon, I'll tell you what. Everybody who laps the water with his tongue, all right, so you go down to the river bank, and you go... Um, So some people are going to do that, and other people are going to go... and use their hand, all right? He's saying... Uh, the number of those who uh, lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300. All the rest of them knelt down to drink water, and God says, pick the 300 who lapped, uh, who did the thing, who did this. With, uh, um, uh, uh, what, which one is it? Yeah, the 300 men who lapped. Yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. Uh, 300 guys. Now, here's where it gets goofed up. I know I just goofed it up, but here's where it gets super goofed up, where like the whole teaching of the passage gets flipped on its head. It's this. Oh, we must be vigilant. It'll preach, right? We must be vigilant. Oh, we must be alert. Mm. Don't just go down there like a dog and uh, we must be alert and look out and look for the enemy. And God took the best of the best. Is that what you think the passage is teaching? Heck No. That's the opposite of what the passage is teaching. What the passage is teaching is God is whittling down the army to make it smaller, 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 smaller. He wants weak, 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 weak. Not a bunch of good soldiers who are going to fight for me. That'll preach, but it's bloody wrong. God wants a small army. He whittles it down to 300 weaklings. All right, here's the mystery. Um, Here's how the story goes. So they go up on this hill. And uh, they surround the Midianites, okay? And um, they, they, uh, just I'm summarizing the story for you for the sake of time. Here's the Midianite camp. And uh, they surround the Midianites. And uh, there's 300 guys, right? Plus Gideon, so that's 301. Gideon's got a little torch, okay? So think of a flashlight. And then think of a Tupperware bowl. And you put it over the flashlight so you can't see the light. All right, that's what they had. They had a little lit torch. They had a little clay jar. They put it over the bowl so you couldn't see the light. And they walk around the city, and uh, it's nighttime. And when Gideon takes the shofar and he goes, the other 300 guys do the same thing. I mean, you can imagine that would be an impressive sound. And then Gideon takes the uh, clay thing off, busts it, and they see the torch. Everybody else does it too. And the Midianites in the valley look up and they go, they, they see all these lights, and they're like, every one of these is the leader of a regiment. There's all these soldiers probably behind each one of these guys, and we're surrounded. And guess what? It's only 301 dudes. <laughs> so pretty clever trick, right? Lest you think that that was just a clever plan. Oh, it was a clever plan. It was God cooked up the plan. Clever plan. But lest you think, yay, they did it. They didn't do it. God doesn't want him to boast, remember? And so here's a really cool thing. What happens is in verse 9, look at verse 9 of chapter 7. God says to um, Gideon, he says, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. No mistaking who's doing what. If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Puri, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And so Gideon goes down there with his buddy um, and uh, he goes to the outposts of the, of the men who were at the camp. Midians and Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in number, and their, and their camels were without number. And so they kind of sneak in there. Nobody knows what these guys look like. They sneak in the camp. They're kind of milling around. They're listening through some stuff. And um, in verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. All right, so here they are, you know, either out the, outside the tent or near a conversation. They overhear this conversation. A guy is going, hey, you know, I had the weirdest dream. Uh, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came into the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down, and the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp is that not something? God says, hey, if you're scared, Gideon, I know you are, take a buddy, sneak on into the camp, and you get a little bit of encouragement. He goes in there and just happens upon a guy who's telling his dream to another guy, and the guy goes, oh, I'll tell you what that means. That means we're about to get our butt kicked. Gideon hears this. Now, who is supposed to be doing what? God is doing the delivering. That's the point of the passage. God makes his strength your strength. He starts with powerlessness. He delivers with mystery. All right, that's a good lesson for us. Um, it's mysterious. Uh, just remember, if you take anything away from this, uh, this message, a, prere- a prerequisite for God's salvation is that it is exclusively provided by God, and you have no say or nothing to add. The sinner is eternally radically, spectacularly helpless, but God provides a beautiful salvation. All right, our last point, and it's a quick point. God's fellowship calls for fidelity. Um, I could could phrase that another way, and we're kind of scrubbing ahead to the last point here. Um, I could say this, it's hard to finish well. And for all of the great deliverance, Gideon didn't finish all that well. Now, he would be called an excellent leader and a man who loved God, and he would be categorized by the Scriptures as, as in, a, in a positive light. Um, but he's got, a, he's got a humiliating dark spot, and it's a lack of fidelity that comes from pride. Okay? Um, and it happens in uh, verse 22 to the end. The men of Israel say to Gideon, rule over us you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, what was the message we just talked about? God saved them. God saved them, not Gideon. But the people are saying, oh, Gideon, You saved us. Rule over us and your son. Basically, become our king, Gideon. And Gideon's like, oh, no, no. I could never do that. I would never be your king. Uh And so on. And we go, okay, well, good for you, Gideon, shaking that off, that that ill-conceived notion. Oh, really? Look at verse 30. Gideon had 70 sons. Wow. His own offspring, for he had many wives. Okay. Icky. Black. Okay, so that's, that's not good either. And by the way, when you see multiple wives in the Bible and you stack it against the creation account, let me tell you what I know for sure. The Bible reports it. The Bible nowhere condones it. The Bible nowhere says it's a wonderful idea uh, if men sire as many women as they like. That's not it. In creation, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is God's plan from the beginning, indisputable, all right? So the Bible doesn't condone it, but it reports it, Blech. all right? So that's a problem with Gideon, Ugh. all right? But check this out, verse 31, um, uh, his, his uh, concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his uh, son Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? My dad's king. So the people are a little confused. Uh, Oh, be our king. (laughs) I would never dream of that, really, because you named your son Abimelech. Kind of confusing. That's pride. That's experiencing God's deliverance seeing God's hand, acknowledging that it's God doing the saving work, and then you rest and get more and more detached. You get comfortable in your lives, and your kids leave the home, and you stop paying for college, and then you start going, okay, now we just kind of live our lives. We don't have to drag our kids to youth group like we used to, and you get fatter, and you get more complacent. And uh, you got people saying yes around you, and somebody cleans your pool, and um, you know, you just feel like you're in control and you've kind of hit a place. Don't buy that lie because it's a dirty lie. You start thinking, hey, Abimelech. All right. Have you seen God work mightily, ladies and gentlemen, to apply this to your life? Have you seen God work mightily? I'm telling you, every one of these grace stories is amazing. Even people who go, man, I grew up and I just, well, I don't remember not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, since I was five, I really don't even remember not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, God shored up my, my faith in everything, but I, you know, that's, a, that's amazing, ladies and gentlemen. That, that's an amazing saving work, amazing. Don't forget God's mighty work. Don't ever come to the cross and ignore it and, and, um, and, and say, I have done these things. Don't look at your Christian life and say, I have done these things, you haven't. All spiritual good comes from God who worketh in you. All right, last thing, and we'll quit, and I think I showed you this years ago. We may have to pump up the volume on this, Paul. Um, All right, so that's the idea. He's in the ghetto. He sees this broken community, and he's thinking Superman's going to come. Someone's going to come from outside, not from within, but outside of us, and he's going to have enough power to save us. Um, Isn't that what humanity longs for? The message of the Bible is, is that's exactly what Christ has done. That's exactly what God has done in Christ. He sees the brokenness, not just in the world around us, but internally. He sees your brokenness. And he sends a Savior with enough power to accomplish the task for you. Oh, with you, yes, you have a gift of faith bestowed by God, and he redeems you unto life, and you do make a decision. You do put your faith in God. But it is God the instig- instigator. It's God the executor. That's the gospel uh, of the Bible that God has done the saving work because he loves you and uh, he's done it sufficiently for you forever. Let's pray. Righteous Father, we're so grateful and amazed that uh, wherever we look in the scriptures, it is dripping with grace. It, it, even. Even when you're faithful in your judgment, there is still a sense that you are redeeming, that you are, your sweeping hand moves through the whole theater and economy of redemption. We praise you for that, and we pray that you would protect us from pride that would ever say, look what I have done. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next time.